the Silver Voices Project, which allowed for digitization and sharing of this archival audio, was made possible by a grant from the U.S. Institute of Museum and Library Services, grant number MA 30190681198119. This is April 13, 1958. This interview is being held with Roy F. Oberbaugh and his wife Marjorie. Would you tell us, Roy, about your early boyhood in Chicago and the string of jobs that led up to your photographic experience? Well, I'll have a try at it. Of course, my early boyhood was some little time ago. But uh, after I left school, I had no definite idea as to just what line I wanted to pursue. So it was sort of a happenstance that I landed in various jobs one of which was with Hyman Berg Jewelry Firm in Chicago, another was with Wells Fargo, still another was Farm Implement News Publishing Company, then there was uh, some surveyor's outfit, the name of which I do not remember, but, but it involved a lot of lettering on maps, and I wasn't too good at that, so uh, that uh, experience was terminated. Then somehow or other, on a vacation in Hannibal, Missouri, I became interested in photography. Previous to that, I had no interest or knowledge of photography, whatever. But uh, being a rather quaint town, I rented a Kodak and went out to take some pictures with very disastrous results and uh, tried again and did a little bit better. But I became quite provoked with myself because the results were so bad, I felt a bit stupid about the whole thing. So I went around Chicago and got catalogs and uh, all information, literature, dealing with photography and so forth, and tried to find out something about it and finally became real interested. I should say that the vacation was from a position in the State Bank of Chicago. I had two weeks. And during that two weeks, as I have explained, I got interested in photography, which continued and really intensified, so that before long I was more interested in photography than I was in the bank. And at that point, I somehow wangled uh, to uh, save up enough to get a Farmer and Schwing six and a half, eight and a half graphic camera. I thereupon gave up my bank position. <laughs> which was supposed to have a future, but I, it, it didn't seem to me that it did have very much of a one. So I took this camera and went around the suburbs of Chicago shooting most anything available, boys' baseball team in a sand lot, uh, beautiful homes, anything that uh, seemed to offer an opportunity of uh, selling a picture later on. And I did sell a few and got a lot of experience. Well, after this... Uh, experience uh, with kids baseball teams and homes and all that it sort of naturally I've forgotten just the details of it but it sort of naturally led into the a small photographic studio which I established on the south side of Chicago and did quite well in that the results were a little bit better it was very interesting work and I got extremely interested in the processing side of photography not just the uh, taking of the pictures, but I was very much interested. I made quite a study, in fact, of all the photographic chemicals necessary to uh, 
to the completion of the pictures, that is, involved reducing and intensifying and developing and uh, shading and dodging and all the very enlarging, all the various things that can be done in the processing of a picture. And I did fairly well in that. Uh, in fact, so well that I was prompted to uh, bid for considerably more work, and I had a rather small studio. But in graduation time, one year, I've forgotten just what year, possibly along, I might say about 1908, I made a bid for some uh, graduation work, and much to my own amazement, I got the freshman class of Chicago University, the state normal school, and the senior class of some uh, high school, I believe it was the Englewood High School. Well, I was literally swamped with work, too much work for this small space and equipment that I had. And of course, I had to have help, and the help proved to be quite incompetent and ruined most all of the prints. And I uh, was conscientious enough not to want to deliver such, uh, such unlikely prints, so I gave up the whole idea and did it all over myself, let these fellows go and worked about 48 hours, night and day, and completed this whole job. But with this waste of material and the fact that I had bid a little too low to get this work to start with, the uh, profit was exceedingly small. So small, in fact, that I was quite disgusted with the whole photographic business at that time. And just about that time when I was contemplating some sort of a change, I didn't quite know what, due to the fact that it was a rainy day, my father had not gone to the office that morning and was looking at the paper, knowing I was rather disgusted with the, uh, having worked so hard and for, oh, just uh, such diminutive returns that uh, he was looking through the ads in the paper and he said, here's an ad. He said, wanted a young man to learn the motion picture business. Why don't you answer this ad? Well, it didn't appeal to me very much. I wasn't particularly interested. So anyhow, to keep peace in the family and save an argument, I said, well, all right, I'll go down and see them about it. So it proved to be an advertisement inserted by the American Film Company, Flying A, and I had to go down to their main office in the Loop District of Chicago and interview the manager who, or rather he interviewed me. His name was Aubrey M. Kennedy. And there were about 30 other applicants who had been notified to call. So he talked to Vet with me and uh, at the end of this conversation he said, well, uh, if anything comes up, we'll let you know. So I left the place with a light, light heart, feeling I was quite safe and not having to take the job. And uh, <laughs> so, much to my surprise, in a week or two, I got a further communication from them saying to come down again. So I went down again. He said, you would really like to uh, go into this business, would you? And I said, well, I think so. Is there a future in it? He said, well, he says, I say there is. He said, we have one man that's making $75 a week. I said, oh, well, that's, that's amazing. $75 a week was like a million in those days. So he said, are you willing to start for $15 a week? So I thought it over, and I said, well, yes. I, I, I would start for that. So he said, all right, you report Monday morning at our processing plant on the north side and report to the superintendent. And now he said, you're to learn the business, so I'm not going to give you any specific thing to to do. You, you just wander around the plant and learn all you can about it. So I said, all right, I'll do that. Well, I went out to the processing plant and commenced my wanderings around the place as instructed. Uh, 
But uh, there was a peculiar situation. Of course, you know, this was in the early development days of the motion picture business, and people were rather secretive about any, any information or experience they had had, and no one was at all willing to impart any of this uh, knowledge to a newcomer. And the various departments uh, kept their doors closed. It, it was really a very difficult thing to learn the business because you had no way of learning it because you were practically barred from all departments and uh, unless you could make a very close friend out of someone they were not willing to tell you anything but sticking to it and in the end I did manage to get a smattering of uh, information about the uh, way things were done there and felt that I was learning something. Well, just about this time, the superintendent, whose name I do not remember, was dismissed, I believe, for intoxication. I can say that as long as I don't remember the man's name. So a new superintendent by the name of Mr. Randall came on the scene. Well, Mr. Randall, of course, didn't know me and didn't know the circumstances under which I was there. So, in his effort to make a showing and reduce uh, expenses and cut down the payroll, he saw me wandering around loose without uh, doing anything valuable or specific. He, I was fired by this Mr. Randall. Well, this, uh, I was quite irritated about this. And uh, so I went back down to the main office in the Loop District in Chicago to, to talk to Kennedy, the manager who had originally hired me and he didn't seem to be inclined to even talk with me but eventually I got in to see him and uh, he looked at me and says well as I've just been fired he says yes I know I said well why was I fired he's well the superintendent says you're no good I said well that's where I have something to say I said the you may have just fired the best man in Chicago I was out, so it didn't matter what I said. I couldn't make matters any worse, so I wasn't afraid to talk. So I said, the new superintendent doesn't know whether I'm good or bad. He's given me nothing whatever to do, so he has no means of knowing whether I'm good or bad. I said, now I want something definite to do, and if I can't do it, you won't have to fire me. I'll walk out. So that line of talk seemed to impress him a bit. So he said, well, I didn't quite understand the situation, perhaps. He said, you go back tomorrow morning and I will be there and we'll have a talk about this with the superintendent. So that uh, came off as planned and uh, the superintendent was a very nice fellow and he just d didn't understand the situation and naturally, seeing me without any uh, specific work to do, decided I wasn't needed so I was out. But when the manager explained this, the conditions under which I was there, well, everything was all right and I went back to work. And while we were talking, a shipment of film came in from California. I should have said earlier that the uh, producing unit was located in California, and they had no means of uh, developing the film there, so when they completed the picture, it was shipped into this developing plant in Chicago. Well. A shipment of film from California came in just as we were talking, and the shipping receiving clerk opened it up and handed Mr. Kennedy, who was still talking with us, a note which was 
contained in this shipment. He looked at it, and the note said, This negative exposed under very bad light conditions use utmost care and development. Uh, Kennedy, the manager, who I guess was a bit of a... He was not opposed to taking a gamble occasionally. He looked at me with a rather smile, and he said, Now, Overbaugh, you say you're a good man and competent. He said, Read this note. I read it. He said, Now you are to develop this negative. Well, that was a little bigger order than I bargained for, but nevertheless, <laughs> I had started something, so it was up to me to attempt to finish it anyway. So I went uh, up to the chemical mixing room, which at that time was presided over by John Seitz, one of our ace cameramen who's still doing beautiful work. And uh, I explained to Johnny that uh, I had orders to develop a badly uh, a negative, which had just come in from California, taken under extremely poor light conditions, and I wanted to make some tests. So I told Johnny what I wanted, and. I knew chemicals quite well at the time, so Johnny handed me out all the various chemicals that I wanted, and I mixed up different strength solutions and with different uh, ingredients in ten different trays. Included in this film from California was a re uh, reasonable, reasonably long piece of test film, which we could use to determine our uh, developing time and strength and so forth. So I tore this into ten different pieces and developed a piece in each tray, and each tray, as I have already said, contained a different solution. When these were uh, developed and fixed and dried, I had a look at them, and there was quite a variation in the quality due to the developing. One of them, well, I thought, was outstandingly good. So uh, I took this uh, formula that I had used in the tray, which developed a good piece of film, and uh, made up a much larger quantity. I think it was 16 gallons, which the developing tank in use at the time held, and developed the negative in this 16 gallons of solution made up from the smaller quantity, which developed the test film. Well, it turned out to be a very well-developed film. In fact, they said it was the best-looking negative they'd had there for some time. So as a result of being fired a few days earlier, I was reinstated, given a raise, and put in charge of negative developing. So there's a story that turned out very happily, at least that phase of it. So then, still at the American Film Company, I continued developing, and then it turned out that I was required also to be the projectionist. In those days, they always projected and cut and edit the negative. They never worked with positive. So the negative had to be very carefully handled at all times. And um, projecting the negative through the earlier projection machines was a bit of a hazard because a, a scratch or an abrasion upon the negative was quite a serious thing. But anyhow, we got through with it with very little trouble. And the, I got so used to looking at negative projected on the screen that. A positive seemed like quite a strange affair to look at a positive on a screen, really. And um, excuse me, why uh, the yes. purpose of this negative projection was to uh, cut and assemble the print. Mm -hmm. They used it just like they use positive now, of course. But I don't know why they preferred to work with negative. Maybe it was uh, 
Maybe they could judge the technical quality of it better, perhaps seeing it magnified on the screen, you know. I don't know why they did it, but anyhow, that was the custom. Was cutting a very fancy affair then? No, not? very simple. It was just a case of splicing scene one out of scene two and so mm -hmm. forth. Well, I have a note here about the uh, drums and the red light and the... Uh, oh, well, in the, in the developing, they didn't use uh, solely a time and temperature method. When it was nearing completion, which you were able to judge after a bit of experience, you had to, it had to be examined with a red light, and, it, and you had to use your personal judgment as, a, as to when it was sufficiently developed, mm -hmm. which uh, just a matter of experience could be done without much difficulty. So anyhow, later on, they decided to, to uh, establish a developing plant in California so that the company shooting there would have facilities at hand to develop their film immediately and, and get a quicker determination of, as to whether or not any of it required uh, retakes. So it was decided that I should go to California and, uh, and uh, put up this developing plant which pleased me very much, and I was all set to go, and I thought better of it. They had a weak moment and decided that perhaps I hadn't had quite enough experience to undertake establishing a plant from the ground up. So I thought maybe they were right and continued down there. In the meantime, a Frenchman whose name I don't recall, but he was considered to have a great deal of experience in just such matters of designing and uh, super supervising the construction of a proper developing plant. So they sent him out and I continued on as before, which didn't, I wasn't too much annoyed at it, thought it was in the cards to be that way. So in the end, he ran into some difficulty out in California and messed it up in some manner. Don't remember just what occurred, but in the end they uh, sent me out after all to complete the work which he had started and came to some difficulty about what it was I don't recall. So anyhow, I came out to California. Where did you go? Right. Oh, to La Mesa. Yes. That was my first uh, stop in California. The company were located there. Just in passing, the company consisted of Jack Kerrigan, J. Warren Kerrigan, the leading man, Pauline Bush, the leading lady, Jocelyn Van Trump, who was the ingenue, Jack Richards Richardson, the heavy, uh, George Pierlot, who was quite a good character man, and the stockman of the horses and all that. Mm -hmm. That was even, they didn't even have a motor car at that time. Yes, and the director was? The director was Alan Dewan. I should have said that in the beginning. And the president of the company, by the way, was S.S. Hutchinson. Oh, yes. So anyhow, it was a delightful place. The company were all very uh, cordial and uh, uh, charming people, and they made me feel at home at once. Dewan was very helpful in every way, and uh, everyone was just grand. So I really enjoyed it, went ahead and finished this plant, and developed uh, what film had been waiting to be developed, developed all that, made prints of it, projected it, and everything went fine, everybody was quite happy. So um, let me see what happened then. Then your camera, the cameraman. Oh, uh, the cameraman, whoever he was, <coughs> and uh, one whole uh, picture, the pictures of course were only one, re one reel in length at that time, but anyhow as the, the resulting picture no one had any heads, it was just headless bodies and it was pretty hard to, 
to <laughs> get up a great deal of interest in a one real picture with no heads in any of the scenes. <laughs> so, of course, that was a very difficult situation for this poor cameraman, and he it resulted in his losing his position. So there weren't too many cameramen at that time, and uh, you couldn't just telephone down to headquarters and have another one set up. So uh, Alan Dwan said, Roy, I said, uh, I think I'll let you take the camera and go out Sunday and see what you can do with it. So I thanked him and said I'd like to. So I took the camera and some film and uh, went to the caves of La Jolla and did some scenic shots. And also, let's see, what was it? I think it was, do you remember, was it Ramona's home? Yeah, Ramona's, yeah, in Ramona, I think it was, just outside of San Diego. Just outside of San Diego. Anyhow, I got miscellaneous scenic shots and took them back to the studio, developed them, made prints, projected them. They looked very good. At least everybody seemed to be satisfied, and I got the job as cameraman. So from then on, I was a cameraman. Working as cameraman, did you do every film that they did for a while, as long as it was one unit out there? Yes, I did. You did. Well, now, just a minute. Uh, sometime along in there, there was a cameraman by the name of Al Heimro. Who worked alternately with you? I'm just phones. trying to think how that worked out. No, Al came out later. He was also in Chicago, and he came out after I did, mm -hmm. as I remember it. Where did Roger Armstrong fit into it? He was already here. Oh. No, he was. I first met Roger in this developing plant in Chicago, but he was sent out here several months before I was oh. to be the scenario department and the script writer. Mm -hmm. And he wrote most of the scripts? Most all. It makes except Cajun uh, Dewan himself would write what? <coughs> Excuse me. This uh, unprecedented uh, <laughs> continuous talking is affected by throat, I guess. Tell us about the cam the kind of cameras that you worked with in, in those days, Roy. And and the first camera I ever remember of using was one of three. I'm sorry, I can't be definite about it, but as I remember it, there was a Williamson camera, a Moy camera, and a Prestwich camera. Mm -hmm. uh, they were they were quite similar. They were um, a rectangular box form camera, and you opened the side door and put uh, magazines inside and threaded it and so forth, and you looked through a long tube and focused through the film, and it was quite tricky. But they seemed to be reliable enough once you once understood them and worked all right, and the results were good. So it was one of those three cameras. In fact, I think uh, in, during the first two years, I used all three of them at various times. Mm -hmm. They seemed to be more or less interchangeable. Were any spies from the patents company watching you when you were... Yes, at, 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 at times there were. There were times when we had to... Uh, uh, disguise or conceal our equipment that we happen to be working with. Sometimes we'd, they'd put up a tent and we'd shoot through a hole in the tent or throw a blanket over you if, if, if spies were thought to be in the neighborhood, mm -hmm. as they sometimes were. Mm -hmm. But we had no open warfare or hostility of any kind, but they were on the lookout to uh, determine what sort of equipment and camera was being used by the various shooting units. That's about all I know about that particular angle of it. Now, while you were working out in California here, what, what was your production schedule? You were called upon to furnish. Our production schedule at that time, we were 
required to do two one reel productions a week. Now, of course, these were entirely exterior. Interiors hadn't been thought of or undertaken at that time. So we had to do two one reel productions a week. Dewan, being a very alert and efficient and rapid director, enabled us to uh, turn out one of these one reel productions in half a day. If we we usually went out on location, I, I think it was about 8 o'clock in the morning. If we weren't back by a late lunch, we were considered very slow. So, generally speaking, with few exceptions, we completed a picture in a half day. Mm -hmm. So, do, to do these two one-reel productions took two half days or one day. The rest of the time was mostly free time. Now, if we wanted all next week off, for instance, didn't feel like working, We'd, do, we'd work four half days this week, mm -hmm. thereby by completing our next week's quota and hold it back and ship it in next week. Then what would you do in your free time? Oh, anything we wanted to do. Go down to San Diego, go swimming, anything at all. What was your cranking speed, Roy, in those 16. Days? 16. Mm -hmm. 16. Now I believe it's 24. That's, the, that's why now, unless the projection machine is geared to it, when some of the old pictures were are shown, they look rather jerky and jumpy because the taking speed is so different than it is mm -hmm. now, you see. Like all motion picture directors in those early days, uh, the motion picture director had to be an opportunist. He had to seize upon the circumstances that presented themselves. Very true. Tell us about making the poison flume. Oh, well, DeWan was especially good at uh, expediency and taking advantage of it what might occur at the moment. And there was a time in, in a, near La Mesa when through some epidemic a great number of cattle died. And they were all over the place uh, on the cattle country there. And Dewan immediately seized upon this occurrence to, to uh, use as a basis for a, a story. So he conceived the idea of having the uh, villain poison the water, which was uh, distributed through through a aqueduct, aqueduct yeah. known as a flume. So he had the uh, worked out a story in which the villain poisoned this water, which came through the flume, which gave rise to the name, of course, the poison flume. That was quite an interesting picture that period, and uh, but that illustrates. Uh, Duan's use of uh, something that, that just occurred at, on the moment, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, here's an interesting thing. I just this is a little sideline, but it, it, it did happen. We had to do a picture in a lemon packing plant in in uh, Lemon Grove, I guess it was. And the light there was very poor, and of course, there nothing was available like artificial lights at that time. So we had to try to get reflected light in through open windows and doors, and the film wasn't was rather slow in its uh, speed, and the lenses, uh, three five, was about as fast as was commercially available then. So we were we had to do this picture in an extremely uh, weak light. In fact, there really wasn't sufficient light to do the picture, but it was a, an opportunity. We had permission to work in there, so we did it anyhow. It was two real pictures. And uh, it was considerably underexposed. And beside being underexposed, there was a, 
very deep scratch all through several important scenes. Quite a pronounced scratch, almost as if you'd taken a pin and deliberately made a scratch in it. So I said, well, about the scratch, I'm afraid we're licked. And for some reason or other, we could not get permission to redo the things. It was either cancel, throw out the whole film we had taken, or make the best of it. So I said, well, I will try and intensify the films, and perhaps we can get a print out of it. So I intensified the film, <laughs> and I got it over-intensified. I think I used bichloride of mercury. Anyhow, I did too good a job on it. It was over-intensified. Then I had to reduce it, and I got it too weak. I overdid that and <laughs> reduced it too much. So I had intensified it again, and brought and by doing that brought it up to its proper level, and it looked pretty good. And miracle of miracles, the scratch had disappeared. In this intensification, reducing, reintensification, it somehow had filled up and eliminated the scratch. Well, this was unheard of at that period. Of course, it was just a pure accident. Yes. But Dewan was practically hysterical over it, and it was written up in the trade papers how this new process was a lot of ballyhoo, of course. But we got rid of the scratch, and to prove it, that it was no fluke, we deliberately took fresh negative that we didn't care about, took a pin, made a big scratch all down the full length of it, put it through the same process, and always eliminated the scratch. Now, that, that was quite a valuable uh, piece of technical discovery there. Now, the strange part of it is this. The method of developing at that time, the film was in continuous agitation. It was a semicircular tank. The film was wound on a drum, perhaps uh, two and a half, three feet in diameter, and perhaps uh, six to eight feet long. And it was an axle went through this drum and rested in a bearing at each end and a crank, and a boy turned the crank slowly. And this film, in its travel through the solution, as it came to the bottom of this semicircular trough that dipped into the solution and was developed. And it kept in motion all the time. Now, later on, when, when rack development came into use, in which the film was wound on a rack, dipped down into a tank and left there for the necessary number of minutes and taken out again, that did not eliminate the scratch, even though you intensified it, reduced it, re-intensified it. But there was something about the movement, the continuous movement of the film through the solution, which perhaps succeeded in blending the jagged edges of the scratch and filled in with the intensification solution, and then the reducer leveled it off again. I, I can't account for just exactly what happened, but, but it did eliminate the scratch. It could only be done with this particular developing method, and any other rack development would not do it. Well, that was just in passing, anyhow. Can you recall taking advantage of any uh, special circumstances in uh, the line of water or fire for your films? No, I don't quite get Forest to... fire? Oh, for, well, let, uh, later. oh, well, here, there were forest fires. A number of them, in fact, occurred near La Mesa during the hot summer months. And... Uh, Anyone could be impressed uh, into service with a, with a marshal there. He could just clamp down on the studio and say, everybody go out here and fight the fire. Mm -hmm. So occasionally, we, uh, when we knew this was about to happen, we would all hide. <laughs> and uh, once in a while, they succeeded in getting some of us to go and fight the fire, which was a brutal job, unless you were physically fit, I'll tell you. 
Sometimes we did, but at other times we succeeded in, in dodging the, our duty. <laughs> and sometimes you even filmed scenes, didn't you? A peculiar thing I'm reminded of right there is that next door to our La Mesa developing plant, there was a mortuary. And Roger Armstrong, our scriptwriter, was fascinated with the <laughs> embalming business. And any time he had a few moments liberty, he would not be around the developing plant. He would be next door within the mortuary. <laughs> any time Roger couldn't be found, that would be where to look for him. And I, if I memory, memory serves me correctly, uh, on one of these occasions when we were attempting to find a hiding place to be uh, to prevent our be having to fight a fire Roger hid in a coffin next door <laughs> so tell about uh, shooting some scenes on the spur of the moment around the fire well there was such a thing occurred but that was much later on when we moved up Santa Barbara well oh. and oh we're not to Santa Barbara yet no oh, but right. it, we might just as well be because right. uh, that about covers the La Mesa thing oh Working outside entirely and not doing interiors, we soon exhausted the uh, immediate scenery around the vicinity and uh, felt that we needed a new location. So Dewan and uh, someone else took a tour around various likely spots and eventually settled on Santa Barbara as be being uh, the best place to move to because it seemed to offer a variety of advantages. There were the mountains, and there was a sea, and there were beautiful homes, and there was uh, agricultural farming country and plains, and not too far away, something uh, me we could use sand dunes and simulated desert. It, in fact, it seemed to offer a great variety of necessary locations in a reasonable striking distance from headquarters. So about the uh, 5th of July, I believe it was, 1912, we abandoned our uh, home in uh, San Diego and moved to Santa Barbara. By that time, we had acquired automobiles, the company had, so we were, came up here in state in a, oh, it might have been a Mitchell or a Hudson, one of those earlier cars, I've forgotten which. Anyhow, so we arrived here in Santa Barbara with the uh, intention of establishing a permanent studio, but of course we couldn't just wait to let the lap uh, develop. We had to do something, so we, up on Upper State Street, Dewan succeeded in renting as a temporary headquarters an old ostrich farm, which was all fenced in and uh, large enough to, uh, to house the, our stock and the rooms for equipment and so forth. And uh, then we rented an old store down in town somewhere and put in some temporary developing tanks and all that so we could carry on. And it wasn't but a few days before, before we were shooting pictures here in Santa Barbara. And we were very, very well received. People were cooperative at being a, a new event in Santa Barbara. Everyone was interested in it. And the hotels and the people who owned the more elaborate homes were quite willing to allow us to use these homes for purposes of uh, settings for our location work. And so we enjoyed life here immensely. We liked the town, which was then about, uh, I, well, it must have been under 20,000 people, mm -hmm. less than half what it is now, of course. 
And we still had to do these uh, two half days a week, and the swimming was delightful here and the beach lovely, so we took full advantage of that. In the meantime, plans were developing to establish a more permanent uh, headquarters here. And it was about a year later that uh, the permanent home of the American Film Company in the West was completed. It was quite a uh, an attractive and efficient layout. I should say it was one of the, I really think that at, at that period it was the finest studio in the United States. It comprised a square block surrounded completely by a mission wall. It was all park, landscape with fountains and whatnot, and it had quite a, a luxurious uh, lounge and green room for actors and actresses in between scenes and it had a glass, fully curtained studio to do interiors in with a few Cooper Hewitts and Klieg lights, which were just coming into use then to shoot motion picture scenes. And we had several automobiles, and they had started to, to expand and um, bring together, bring into the company, other stars who had then acquired a reputation. Oh, in the next year or two, there was Harold Lockwood and May Allison and uh, <clears throat> Edward Cox and Winifred Greenwood. That's right. George Edward, Field. George Fields was a heavy. Harry Von Meter. Harry Von Meter was a character man. Edward Coxon was a leading man. But she didn't mention Louise Lester because she was with the old original company. Of course, I'm sorry. I, I should have mentioned Louise Lester. She was a character actress and quite, uh, very good, and had, had quite a reputation. She established a, the lead in a series called the Calamity Ann series, and became known as Calamity Ann, and was had quite a following. Wally Reed was in there. Wally the Reed came in a little later, that's right. And there was Eugene Pallette, and... Uh, Marshall Nealon. Marshall Nealon appeared on the scene. And then we had several other directors, Frank Berzaghi, uh, uh, Santel, what was his name, Al Santel? Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Albert Hale and uh, Henry Otto and uh, Tom Ricketts. He Tom Ricketts. Oh, and Lorimer Johnston. Lorimer Johnston, of course. Oh, there was uh, quite a list of names who, just on the instant, I don't recall. I could think of them all. Mm -hmm. But uh, instead of having one shooting unit, we had perhaps, uh, in the end, about ten. Well, Margarita Fisher and Harry Pollard, oh, the American Beauty series, that was the big... Yeah, there was sort of a, a sub-label of the American Film Company known as the American Beauty brand. Mm -hmm. They were directed all by Harry Pollard, and his wife, who was Margarita Fisher, starred in them. And the they were very well thought of and very uh, worthwhile productions. But uh, then, oh, then later on came um, Mary Miles Mitter, Yes, that was quite a bit later than that. Quite a was bit 1916. later. 1916, I think. Well, even that, I mean, that's only four years later. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know, <laughs> As and time observing, goes. Then, then later on, too, toward the, the 1915 or mm -hmm. 16, there was, they made the big serial called The Diamond from the Sky, right. which is supposed to be a continued serial. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Lottie Pickford was the leading woman, Mary Correct. Pickford's sister, mm -hmm. and Irving Cummings was the lead that's right. in that mm -hmm. particular series. And also, didn't. Um, Bennett, uh, what am I thinking of? Richard Bennett. 
Yes, Richard. Richard Bennett. Richard Bennett? Yeah. Oh, yes, Richard Bennett. That's mm -hmm. right. He made damaged goods. Yeah, that's right. That was a sensation. And Philip Holden Waster. Did you? Were you on camera for that? We, we have a print of that at the house. I don't believe it. What was the name you mentioned? Philip Holden Waster. That was a Richard Bennett film. I don't remember being oh. on that, no. Mm -hmm. uh, did he do that with Americans? Yes. You know? mm -hmm. He did. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, that may have been after I left. Mm -hmm. You see, I left during 1916. The company were still in existence for two or three years after that, so yes. this may have come later. Mm -hmm. I just don't remember. I think we ought to go back a little bit now, uh, yeah. Marjorie, and get the reaction of Santa Barbara to this invasion of the American Film Company. You were a native of Santa Barbara, weren't you? Yes, I was, I was born in Santa Barbara. And uh, when the American Film Company uh, announced that uh, they were moving to Santa Barbara and establishing mm -hmm. studio here, oh, there was great excitement. The local merchants had big um, notices in their windows, and they s had sent pictures of the actors and actresses. And, of mm -hmm. course, we were familiar with them because we had two uh, little movie theaters, as we called them in those days here. And we had seen these American films, so that when we heard the Jack Richardson and and oh, Vivian Rich, of course, was the leading woman oh, then. Yes. She came with them, and uh, all of these these uh, actors and actresses with whom we were familiar, we were all very excited about it. I was a teenager at the time, I might add, and uh, the the local merchants and the people in general, the uh, residents of Santa Barbara, were very much excited about this this event, which was really uh, mm -hmm. probably the biggest thing that had happened in Santa Barbara. And um, they were all very nice uh, and cooperative. And they, of course, in those days, we had a great many wealthy residents here. They used to come and make their homes, had beautiful homes in Montecito, which was a residential section of Santa Barbara. And they had beautiful estates. And they were very generous and in uh, letting the company use these estates for filming their exteriors and the gardens and their homes mm -hmm. and everything else. Yeah. So they, the, the reaction was, was really very pleasant, very nice, and, and uh, I think that most of the people in the company felt that, and they liked Santa Barbara very much, too. So that was the reaction. Yeah. To now, you started uh, doing bits in these films, didn't you? And finally you worked into... To, uh, oh, yes, of about course. About a stock company. Yes, the... Um, the uh, company uh, had their regular players, their players, and then uh, well, then they started the stock company. They had a few, um, well, uh, people who might oh, be local, local residents, but mm -hmm. they were they were still um, sort of on the professional borderline. Amber. Now that's where Charlotte Burton came in oh. and stayed with the company, and um, then of course they needed in their scenes. A great many uh, extras, as we call them in those days, mm -hmm. the extras. So uh, the extras were residents, people of Santa Barbara, of all ages, from babies, young babies, up to very old people, that um, uh, they used. They got in touch with the studio. In fact, I think the uh, assistant director made known in the newspaper or something that uh, anyone who was interested in acting, so what would they apply the picture then? So it happened that most all of the of the uh, young people in Santa Barbara became interested in working in the movies, and uh, some of the ones who showed a little more promise and, and uh, talent 
were put on what they called a guaranteed list. And you were guaranteed so much, um, well, I think it was $60 a week, which of course was a lot of money in those days, for three days' work. And mm. then, if you worked anything uh, over that three days, you were paid accordingly. I don't know mm. about just how much it was, maybe $10 a day or mm. something of that kind. But anyhow, uh, there were quite a number. Well, I happened to be a very good swimmer. I loved the sea and the oceans. don't remember when I couldn't swim. And uh, I was really probably the best woman swimmer and girl swimmer, you might say, in Santa Barbara in those days. Well, whenever they had scenes calling for um, one of the uh, their stars, or swimming scene, or thing of that kind. Diving off a cliff or something. Or diving, yes, off a cliff into a into the sea. Uh, I was called upon to do that, and of course I loved it, just loved it. So uh, some of the directors that I got to know quite well would write in, and they're in their uh, scripts, something. they'd write in possibly little scenes. I became, by that I will say, uh, on the guaranteed list. Mm. So um, they would write in scenes for uh, a swimming scene, for me, mm -hmm. so that I would do it in, in connection with the lead or one of the characters. And that brings me to a very, which I think was a very amusing <laughs> yes, incident which too. occurred. <laughs> it was um, a film of Edward Coxon and Winifred Greenwood were the leads, and George Field was the villain. So um, I was supposed to have been betrayed by George Field, the villain. And uh, the result of that betrayal was that I just decided to drown myself. <laughs> so <laughs> I went out, way out in a rowboat, a little skiff, and jumped in the ocean. And uh, I was supposed to be drowning when Edward Coxon came along and saw my plight from the end of the pier and was to dive in and uh, save me and rescue me. Well. But, of course, he got there too late, but that time I was drowned, and the finish of the scene was supposed to be he carries me, swims inshore, and brings me up the beach, and all Your the curious onlookers, I was, I was drowned, and then he accuses the villain, and he has me in his arms. Well, I did my part, oh, right, I went down three times and came up, struggled in the water, then they cut to Edward Cox, who dove off the uh, platform they'd made on the pier, not a high dive, but mm, a dive. Yeah and he uh, swam toward me. Well, he was fully dressed, and he had on a tie. Now, I'm not sure it might have been crocheted or knitted, but whatever the material was, the tie shrunk suddenly and around his neck and started to choke him. And Ed Coxon was not a very good swimmer, he yeah. was a particularly good swimmer. So he started to flounder around, and here I came up a couple of times, and I Waiting saw... Waiting to be rescued. Huh? You were waiting to be rescued. I was waiting to be rescued. Yeah, waiting to be rescued. So I opened one eye and looked at him, and I saw poor Ed Coxon with his eyes bulging and clawing at his throat. And I decided something must be done to, to rescue him. So I suddenly came to, this drowning girl came to, and I swam to him and held him up. And by that time, the uh, director and assistant director on the stage saw that something was happening was wrong. So I held him up and managed to pull his coat off. Then one of the fellows who was standing by with a bathing suit on, he dove in and, uh, of course, got Coxon, pulled the tie off of him and got him in to the end of the shore, the platform where it was, landing on the wharf. And poor old Ed had to be practically 
<laughs> resuscitated Brian. <laughs> that's not the way it was written in the script. That was not the way it was written in the script. <laughs> but in any case, they uh, managed to cut it so that they showed Ed swimming toward me. Oh. And then the next cut they took with uh, Ed coming out of the surf through the breakers carrying oh. me and the people on the beach. And he brought me in then and, and had me in his arms. I was limp and drowned <laughs> and Ed, they were all there standing around. I have somewhere an old still of that. that sort of I must find but that. But that was the story of, <laughs> of the big drowning scene. <laughs> that was funny at that. <laughs> Oh, Roy, I have uh, a note here about an incident that concerned the Pacific Railway in a race that, between the train and the car. Will you tell us about that? Yes, I remember that. And there's a spot here in Santa Barbara where the highway runs parallel to the railway for, oh, I should say two or three miles. So in some picture, I don't know if it's diamond from the sky or not, it might have been. I'm not sure of the picture, but anyhow, it was decided to incorporate in the script a race between the express train that came through at a certain time and uh, an automobile. So they planned this thing very carefully and timed the automobile and found out just how fast it would go and found out just how fast the train went on its passage through this particular section, but they didn't notify the railway or the engineer. As far as the train crew, they knew nothing whatever about this. So it was decided to do this scene on a certain day. They had their one of their best drivers handle a car. It was one of their fastest cars. It might have been a, a Winton or a locomobile. Not sure of the make of the car just now. But they had the engine running, warmed up, and stationed on the mark. When this train came along, they knew just when to accelerate the car and get it up to its maximum speed to keep just slightly ahead of this train. And the uh, uh, passenger in the car waved at the engineer in the train. In other words, they egged them on to a race and so forth. The idea was that when they got to the end of this three-mile stretch, the road did curve and cross the railway track. And the uh, plan was to have the automobile gain enough on the train so it could just pass in front of the train without a collision. It was a risky thing to do, but a bit foolhardy, but nevertheless they did this thing. And it came off as planned, but it was the closest call I've ever seen. The, the car just barely made it across the track. In fact, there was a faint sound of clicking metal as the, as the uh, rear fender on the car was just clipped by the train passing. Just, if it was a split second later, the car would have been destroyed. That's all there was to it, and some lives lost. But anyhow, it worked, and the engineer promptly fainted. We found this out afterward. And the fireman had to take over and bring the train to a stop, and then there was uh, quite a to-do about this. The uh, railway company uh, instigated some suits or some trouble with the local motion picture company with the flying A, and there was quite a disturbance about this. I guess, guess it, in the end it was all settled satisfactorily, but that was one of the more hair-raising <laughs> events that occurred. Uh, right along in there, there was another really uh, mm, regrettable incident that happened. We had a, 
a man here who was very well liked by everybody. In fact, he was a wonderful chap. I wish I could remember his name. I don't think he played leads. <clears throat> but he had a scene to do. He was supposed to be a captive, and he was blindfolded and his and bound. His arms and wrists were and arms were tied around to his body, and I think his feet were tied together, but he was standing up on a stagecoach which was to wend its way around a narrow road uh, overlooking a rushing torrent that was after the rains in Mission Canyon or Creek or someplace. What was this? Out here near the beach, Royal Borough. Royal Borough Beach. Well, anyhow, he foolishly agreed to do this, and they shouldn't have allowed it, but he, it was arranged that he, at a certain point in this road where the, uh, this old coach made a turn, he was supposed to jump, bound as he was, and blindfolded into the stream. And he felt that he could do it. So he did. And it didn't come off his plan. And in his uh, jump off the stagecoach, his head hit a projecting rock and his neck was broken and he was killed. And everyone felt terrible about this because he was probably the best liked person that was ever connected with the company. I can't remember, wish I could remember his name, but that was one of the really regrettable things that happened. I have a note here on another very amusing incident that you were both telling me about, which involved uh, a setup for a busy street intersection right down, I think, in the heart of Santa Barbara. Oh, yes. That, well, that was a little on the lighter side. That's good to take the <laughs> flavor off the other regrettable incident. It is also concerned automobile. In some picture, a collision was called for at a busy intersection in the heart of town. I think a taxi cab was supposed to collide with a touring car. Well, this was also very carefully planned. They took the touring car, which they intended to use, and uh, locked the steering gear so it wouldn't deviate. It would, the car would run in a straight line if it was started in the right direction. And it was timed down to a second as to just how long it would take for a certain starting point to reach the intersection uh, where the collision was to take place. Now, as the scene was to be shot, there was to be actually no one in the car because they didn't want to take any just further dummies. risk. Hmm? Just dummies. <laughs> the car was, pardon me, <clears throat> the car was to be filled with dummies. The taxi cab, of course, had a driver in it, but he was able to protect himself, supposedly. So uh, eventually it came time to do the scene. Heretofore, in the practice runs, the uh, driver had, had been on the running board and set the throttle and got the car going, then jumped off. But they didn't figure on the fact that the car relieved of the weight of the driver would go a few seconds faster than with the driver standing on the running board. So when they actually did the scene and the driver of the car started it and jumped off the running board. Of course, the car gathered momentum at a little greater rate than had been planned with the driver on it. They had neglected to think of that. So what resulted was that the uh, car missed the collision with the taxi cab by a split second or so. So here we have a situation which a runaway car full of dummies with no driver and gathering speed by the moment was careening down State Street at the busy time of day. The Main Street. Main Street of Santa Barbara. 
Well, it ran in a straight line due to the fact that the wheels were locked for a short distance, but it hit some unexpected object, and the wheels were deflected enough so the car veered in toward the curb. It immediately smashed into a luxurious limousine owned by some wealthy resident of Montecito, and with the impact, these four or five dummy figures all skyrocketed out of this open touring car and landed on their heads on the sidewalk and the pavement. Uh, women who happened to be passing screamed and some fainted. There was general consternation took place. It was a, it was a great tragedy and it was a horrible thing to witness. Of course, no one knew these were dummies. They, uh, in the excitement of the moment, they appeared like real figures being... <laughs> Uh, meeting a violent end. <laughs> and uh, it, it was funny, but it was also uh, caused a lot of trouble, too. The company naturally were sued and had to replace this woman's limousine, which was, was practically wrecked by the, the impact of this runaway car full of dummies. And no one was ever hurt, really. But uh, to see it, you'd think that, uh, that the war had started, <laughs> the bomb had been dropped. You showed me a still uh, with a scene that was shot in front of a, uh, a, a smoldering patch of forest. Can, do you remember the, the, oh, yes. the circumstances surrounding that? Yes, vaguely. That was another. Uh, forest fires occurred quite frequently out here in the, in the coast in the, around August and September. And was one very bad one occurred here in Hope Ranch. In fact, the, the heat was so intense it was difficult to get within shooting distance of it, really. Hmm. But when it subsided a little bit and was still blazing quite violently, but had uh, the heat had somewhat died out, it was decided to take advantage of this fire and work it into a script somehow, into a story. Of course, there wasn't time enough to, to uh, improvise or write a suitable story, so they took the first leading man available, which happened to be uh, Sidney Ayers, and I think Vivian Rich was available, who was one of the leading ladies. They grabbed her and this leading man, rushed them out to the scene with a car. I think I was the cameraman on the job, and I put the camera in the car and went out also. And all we could think of to do was to have the uh, leading man pick up the suffocated, supposedly leading lady who had been caught in the choked by the smoke or something and carry her limp form, rush through burning trees with her and out of the out of the scene, hoping they could utilize that bit in a story later on, which they did. And uh, so any cataclysm of nature which occurred, they made some attempt to utilize it into a later story and, and on the spur of the moment did what they could in, in the way of uh, capturing a scene or two which might be of use later on. So that's about all I remember about that particular well, incident. You know, there's, uh, I think, an amusing incident good. Um, that I haven't told you, George. Yes, go ahead. Just, but I happen to think of it. You know the one I usually call the Fallen Angel episode? Mm -hmm. The Harry yeah. Pollard? Mm -hmm. The American Beauty film? American Beauty mm -hmm. film. Well, the Harry Pollard and uh, Margarita Fisher, the maid, uh, which was supposed to be their, uh, I think it was their first five reel film, it was called Motherhood. I'm almost possible that. Uh, yes, possible it was. I remember it. Motherhood. And uh, I played several different parts in that. And uh, there was one scene uh, taken in Montecito in the Gillespie estate, a beautiful big uh, Italian... A show place, really. A show place, Montecito. 
and it had a flight of steps going, oh, I don't know how many hundred feet, but they, this flight of steps came from a, a lily pool and straight up to the house. And at the top of this flight of stairs, there were planted two very tall palm trees. Now, in the story, Margarita Fisher was supposed to be having a dream that she'd uh, gone to heaven. And she, uh, uh, I don't know just what the uh, part of the, her scene was, but and anyhow, this thing was she was supposed to look up this flight of, of stairs and there was an angel at the top. And I was the angel. Now the, the whole thing was this angel was supposed to float down this flight of stairs. She'd see this angel came floating down from the very top of the stairs above her and down to her with the angel's arm down stretch and put the the angel supposed to put her arms or his angels <laughs> around Margarita Fisher. Well, the way they decided to do this was to string a, a wire, heavy, very heavy piano wire, whatever they used, between these two big palm trees. Then from the center of this wire, there was another one coming right down to Margarita Fisher's feet and secured there very securely. Mm -hmm. Now, I was dressed as an angel with wings and all that business and a harness put on me. And I was hoisted up on a, a, on a wire to this, uh, this, the beginning of the thing, at the top of the flight of stairs, on this wire strung between this. Mm -hmm. Now, this was possibly, oh, 25 feet from the ground, I should say. Oh, at least. Oh, yes, between this, the top of the stairs on this wire. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the, well, there was a, another wire that I was put in with a, with a pulley or something yeah. that ran, was supposed to be uh, held, the wire that was attached to my harness mm -hmm. was supposed to be held by um, one of the uh, stagehands, or whatever they call them, grip men, and he was supposed to, he and another man, to let this through a pulley and very slowly let me come floating down on this piano wire, which you couldn't see, so the effect was that I would float down mm -hmm. toward Margarita Fisher very red. Well, everything went well. They, they uh, hoisted me up to the top of this this thing, and I was dangling in midair between these two palm trees, and Harry Pollard said, shoot. At that moment, I never knew what occurred, but the man who was holding the wire, supposed to pay it out very gently, so I came floating down, let go of the thing, and it was the quickest descent of an angel that you have ever seen in your life. <laughs> it was just like in the circus where they come, you know, down on a tight wire mm. from the top. And I flew down this thing at a rapid rate, and they saw what was happening, and Harry Pollard and Jimmy Douglas was the assistant oh, yeah. director, right. and I remember Jimmy catching me he he was thought very quickly and he sort of so that i didn't hit the ground with a thud because yeah. I, I didn't know what was happening here i was dangling with this harness yeah, well, could you <laughs> my, use your wings my and... wings were flapping and all well they did manage to to stop me so that i wasn't hurt yeah well but i was so surprised you could have collided with Fisher, couldn't, too, yeah, couldn't you? of course she stepped back and oh. she so they, they mm. just didn't know what was happening it was all so quick. I know. But as they called it the Fallen Angel episode, because I say it's... The it. Falling but, Angel. Yeah, the Falling Angel. So uh, the scene was, was done over. Then he said, well, do you think you want to try it again? I said, well, 
I'll do it again if you put another man, a new man on that on wire. the wire. It'll do it because so. we rehearsed it. We yeah. rehearsed it and it went off beautifully. Mm -hmm. But the thing was, he, he I don't what still don't know what happened. Yeah. But he he said, well, it got away from him. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, then they had two or three men hold it, and the scene was very beautifully done. And I remember seeing it, and it did look like. I just came floating down to Margaret. You were quite pleased with yourself as an angel. I was quite pleased with myself, and the funny part of it was that one of the other um, characters that I played in the same film, mm -hmm. I seem to be playing a lot of betrayed women, but <laughs> I was supposed to be um, an unwed mother, and I sat on the steps of the old mission holding my baby while the multitudes went by and looking at me with scorn and uh, all this was in so <laughs> It showed how many really melodramatic one person could play. Oh yes, <laughs> but I thought that was rather funny. Well, that is, that was a falling angel. Now I have a note here about Victor Fleming. Does he come in before or after the Santa Barbara Motion Picture Company? Well, and uh, Victor Fleming really became in in the very early uh, period of the Santa Barbara story. All right. Will you take it from there, right? Yes. No. Well, when this film company, Flying A, came to town, of course it was, it attracted the, the, the fact that there was a motion picture company located here. It was quite a sensation in town, and people were very much interested. And uh, some people who were scientifically and technically minded, like Victor Fleming, were especially interested. Victor Fleming was a very expert automobile engineer, you might say. And there was a wealthy man here by the name of Clinton B. Hale. He had a beautiful home and uh, all four or five of the best cars of that period, I believe simplexes and locomobiles. And Vic was, uh, oh, a super expert in the care and maintenance of these cars. He was just a natural-born mechanic. So Vic was on uh, Clinton B. Hale's payroll to maintain and look after his cars. Well, when the Flying A came to town, Vic uh, commenced hovering around the studio in his spare, spare time, curiosity and interest, and we became acquainted. And I had a little car of some sort, and Vic made some improvements in that for me. We got quite well acquainted. So one day he said, Roy, said, you know, I, I love this business. He said, I would like to somehow get into it. He said, couldn't you do something about it, or haven't you enough influence to get me in here or something? I said, well, I might have. I'll try so I uh, spoke to the higher-ups about it and eventually succeeded in getting Vic into the studio as an assistant cameraman. In fact, he was my assistant cameraman. And uh, we got along fine, and Vic was very valuable in so many ways and uh, very quick to pick anything up and even improve on it. So uh, in the end, uh, I left Santa Barbara and went old Universal City or New York or somewhere. And at that time, Vic had acquired enough photographic information and know-how to go ahead and he became a cameraman himself on his own. Then on location in Los Angeles, Vic, who was sort of a man's man type, became acquainted with Douglas Fairbanks, who took quite a liking to Vic. And it resulted in Vic's going to work with Douglas Fairbanks. And uh, Fairbanks eventually made Vic Fleming his director. And uh, then Vic uh, was no longer a cameraman. He was a recognized director, and he, his work improved, and he had uh, better and better pictures to do. And in the end, 
He directed Gone with the Wind, for David Selznick, which, as we all know, is one of the biggest moneymakers of all times, and considered a very successful and entertaining picture, and Vic Fleming, a local Santa Barbara, uh, mechanically-minded boy, directed it. And that was, of course, won an Academy Award and so forth. Roy, as long as you've mentioned Gone with the Wind, why don't you go ahead and tell about your connection with that film? Oh, too? well, this was much later, of course, when yes. Gone with the Wind, after I had returned from several years in Europe shooting various things over there. And I came back here, and I had been ill. And I had sort of a... No, I hadn't at that time, had I? I don't just remember how it came about, but anyhow, I found myself in charge of the photography department at Selznick Studios. At the time, they were doing Gone to the Wind. And although I, I did not shoot the picture, I did a few odd scenes in it here and there, but Ernie Haller photographed the picture in collaboration with the, one of the uh, Technicolor cameramen. Who was that now? Uh, oh, gosh. Well, we'll find it later. Yeah. Anyhow, and Vic directed the picture, and I was there at the time. And, of course, Vic was quite... Uh, we renewed old reminiscences and so forth. And, and I was very happy to see Vic so successful. And he was. He really turned out to be a wonderful director. Now we'll go back a bit to the time when you left uh, the Santa Barbara Motion Picture Company, and I believe you went with Kalem, didn't you? And, and didn't that job Let's take see. you to Los oh, Angeles? No. Well, you correct Oh, they, I tell you, during the time that the we were holding forth here, uh, the old Flying A, the people of Montecito, who had uh, money to spend, became so interested in the motion picture business that they decided to organize a company themselves. And Lorimer Johnston, one of our better directors in the Flying A, they interested him in this new venture. And so Lorimer Johnston became the first director of this new Santa Barbara Motion Picture Company, they called it, all local money. Dr. Elmer Bosick was one of the directors and so forth. And I had just been working with Lorimer Johnston, so when he went with this new company, he wanted me to come over with them too as a cameraman and uh, take charge of photography generally. They offered me considerably more money, uh, bonus of a thousand shares of stock, and my name on the screen, which was a little unusual in that recognition in that, uh, at that time. So I decided to go with them. And uh, one difficulty was that the Montecito people and the local people, having put up the money, felt that uh, they had some say-so as to who took the more important parts in the productions. Consequently, all their fa fa it turned out that all their families played the principal parts in these productions, for the most part. Not entirely so, but to a great extent. Well, it was all well-meant, of course, but they hadn't the necessary qualifications. Just a case of too much interference. To too much interference, it. yes. And in the end, it wasn't a successful venture, and in the end, it fizzled out. And. Uh, I believe they had difficulty in, uh, what would you call it, marketing or... Uh, yes, there was some trouble there. Distributing. Yeah. Their, yes, their there was some trouble there. Mm -hmm. So when that fizzled out, I saw it coming and, and succeeded in selling my stock, which had been given to me. And about that time, something came along in, uh, in uh, Los Angeles that interested me. I was offered... Uh, oh, Marshall Nealon, who, of course, I knew from being here 
was then directing for Calum, and he wanted me to come up and do some work with him and the Calum Company, so I went up there, and I believe we did some ham and bud comedies, which were very popular at the time. It was uh, uh, ham and bud. Let's see, Bud Duncan and Hamilton. What was his Lloyd name? Hamilton. Lloyd Hamilton, that's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. So I did some pictures with Marshall Neal in there, and I believe one or two was Ruth Rowland. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, who else is directing there at Calum that you William Bodine also directed some pictures at the time. Incidentally, I think just recently I read where Bill Bodine was directing some picture just now. Mm -hmm. uh, and much later than that, too. Yeah. I did a picture over at Universal, Universal with William Penrod Bodine. And Sam, Penrod and Sam, Booth Tarkington Bodine. story. Oh, yes. That was much later. Mm -hmm. And Bill Bodine was directing that also. And uh, I think, uh, who was it played the, uh, played Penrod in that? Uh, was it Wesley Barry? No, no, well-known name, uh, young fellow. Wesley still, Barry? I don't think so. No. Wasn't it Wesley? I don't think well, so. We'll, we'll fill that in later. Well, yeah, that'll come anyhow. All right, now we're still at Calum, and after that, I think you went to Universal, didn't you? <coughs> <coughs> I think from there I did go to Universal. Something came up there, there that I was offered to, an assignment. I went over there and did some Cleo Madison pictures. She was a star, and I believe the director was uh, Ed Sloman, or Ted Sloman. Yes. I'm quite sure of that. And while I was there, there was also a leading lady by the name of Doris Pawn, mm -hmm. with whom I did two or three pictures. And uh, How long were the pictures that you were making there? Do you remember? Were they to the best of my recollection, there were two reels. Two reels. Mm -hmm. I think the airplane incident is quite interesting. Would you tell us about that? Oh, yes. I don't remember the name of the picture, but this also occurred at Universal. One of the, some script called for a, an airplane to be destroyed as a result of a bomb being dropped on it by uh, another airplane. So to, technically, to make this feasible and uh, photographically possible, I had a dummy airplane suspended on a a strong cable uh, attached to uh, two hilltops, mm -hmm. and we set up in such a way, of course, the cable didn't show. Above that, a real airplane was to fly with a with a fake bomb, which was to be dropped and visible in the camera. In the lower dummy airplane, they had a charge of dynamite that was to be ignited from the ground with a contact. On, at the right moment. So the, uh, we got set up for it. The airplane flew over the uh, dummy airplane, which was supposed to be destroyed. The fake bomb was dropped, and that showed that it was being dropped. The uh, explosive charge in the lower airplane was set off, and there was a big explosion. Unfortunately, the charge of explosive was uh, too big. They hadn't calculated it properly, and it made a terrific air pocket or commotion which made the upper airplane entirely unstable. And the uh, pilot lost complete control of it, and the altitude wasn't sufficient so he could do much about it. He saw he was going to crash, so rather than get entangled in the crashing plane, he jumped. He landed uh, a few feet from the camera where I was set up and was almost instantly killed. And, of course, that left a, quite an impression on me as to the uh, possible danger in flying at that early period, anyhow. So that, the thoughts of that stayed with me for quite a long time. 
As long as we've mentioned airplanes, I, I wish Roy you'd tell at this point the story about Bartholomew too. Oh yes. This was later on when I was working in New York. I think uh, it was a picture in which Dick Barthamus played the lead. We had location work to do in Atlantic City. We went to Atlantic City, finished the location work, and were to take a train back to New York. But Dick had a, an, a pressing appointment and had to get there the earliest possible moment. And they felt that the train would not get in there in time, so he engaged, uh, chartered a private airplane with a private pilot. It was a two-seater, which the pilot sat in front and the passenger behind. So they took off from Atlantic City, oh, quite normally, and flew to New York and landed at their destination. And Dick was not used to flying. I don't know if he'd ever flown before or not, but at least wasn't very well versed in the uh, what to do. So when they, uh, when they landed, Dick being in the seat behind waited, uh, didn't know whether he should wait till the engine was shut off or not, but the engine wasn't shut off. It continued to run and the pilot didn't ma make any motion of getting out and Dick was a little fidgety about his appointment and, and wondered what he should do. So anyhow, he reached over and tapped the pilot on the shoulder to see what was the next procedure. Nothing happened. The pilot was dead. So the pilot had somehow, it was not determined whether the pilot died just as he landed or, or during the process of landing, but anyhow, he died. And uh, so that was quite a disturbing thing to have happened to, to Dick. That uh, frightened him a little bit for a while, too. But it was odd that he probably made a very successful smooth landing. There was no resulting accident, whatever. But it was odd that the pilot should have, presumably, a heart attack. But anyhow, he was dead before the engine was shut off. I believe after you worked for Universal, that and the... Uh latter part of 1915, you were again re-engaged by American. I discover now that I failed to cue you in about a, a vision scene, which probably happened much earlier during your experience with American, but would you tell us about that? Oh, I'm not sure myself whether that vision scene you refer to occurred with the American or with this new uh, Santa Barbara Motion Picture Company. In any event, it was here in Santa Barbara, and it, it was really immaterial as which company it was. I don't remember the name of the picture, but there was a little trick work connected with it. In those days, of course, uh, when there was trick work to do, the cameraman had to do it as part of his uh, routine. Nowadays, of course, all things in the nature of uh, special effects are, or tricks are turned over to a specialized department which does that sort of thing and are equipped to do it. Well, this particular uh, story uh, there was a sequence in it in which the spirits of two men left their bodies and wandered around through certain experiences, and I believe they also had a duel in spirit form. And in the end, the spirits returned to their bodies. But I became confused, or something went wrong, and in the end I got the spirits back in the bodies, but in the wrong bodies, <laughs> which have made quite a ludicrous... Uh, <laughs> they Newman to the whole series there. 
I seem to remember that the name of that film title, at least the working title of that, was The Metamorphosis. It was, you're right. The but I hadn't thought yeah. of it. I never would but have I thought of it. I think it was Sidney Ayers. Now, I'm not sure. It I'm was sure, Sidney Ayers. Right. For, um, You're quite right. The American. Yes. And the name of it was The Metamorphosis, and it was Sidney Ayers, and who That's the other spirit gentleman was, I don't know. <laughs> Back in American, you worked with uh, Harold Lockwood and May Allison, didn't you? Yes. Mm -hmm. number of pictures with them. Mm -hmm. And then, I think, in May of 1916... You were married, weren't you? Correct. May of May 1916. Mm -hmm. And just at that time, almost coincidental with the with her being married, uh, events took place which I ha had committed myself to uh, doing a picture in New York with John Emerson and uh, Norman Talmage. And this was sort of suggested to me by my old director, Alan Dewan. Uh, John Emerson was a close friend of Alan Dewan's, and uh, Emerson was uh, had decided to do this picture in New York with Norman Talmadge. It was in need of a cameraman, and Dewan suggested me, and he also told me that he thought it might be advisable for me to go, go a little new, different experience, and I thought so too. Anyhow, we uh, we. Uh, went to New York. On the train with us was Eric von Stroheim. And Eric von Stroheim was at that time John Emerson's assistant director. We arrived in New York and uh, after a few days went to work on this uh, picture, which I think the name of it was The Social Secretary. Now the interesting thing there didn't so much concern me as it did Eric von Stroheim. Uh, we all know how Eric von Stroheim's later reputation, what a brilliant director he was, although perhaps somewhat expensive. But anyhow, Emerson regarded von Stroheim as wasting his time in the motion picture business. In fact, after about two weeks, von Stroheim was dismissed. Emerson advised him to take up some other line of work because he was not equipped to do anything in motion pictures and didn't comprehend what it was all about and was no good whatever, and he better get out and stay out, so he was fired. Uh, when Stroheim and I got quite well acquainted on the train going to New York, and I was a stranger in New York, and when Stroheim was more or less familiar with it, with it, and uh, this all happened so suddenly that Marjorie had things to take care of here, here in Santa Barbara and couldn't come out to New York for a little until a little bit later. So I was on my own, and Van Stroheim was unattached. So he suggested we take a room together in a hotel which he knew of in New York, which we did. And uh, Van Stroheim, as I say, was let out after two weeks and uh, had a bit of a problem, financially speaking. But uh, in the end, uh, I think uh, Emerson took him back for one more chance and let him go again, still reiterating that Van Stroheim didn't amount to much. But uh, as we all know, eventually uh, Stroheim did get going again somehow and made a huge success and quite a reputation for himself as being an outstanding director. Well, that was the part that concerned von Stroheim anyhow. And uh, we finished this uh, social secretary. I don't really remember much about it except that Norma Talmadge was in it. And the company either uh, discontinued making pictures or folded up or 
decided to, to produce back in California. I'm not quite certain of just what happened, but anyhow, uh, there was no more pictures with that company for the moment, and I was only engaged for the one picture, so I was in New York, rather on the loose and, uh, and unknown, and uh, it turned out that anything I had done out here on the coast didn't mean very much back east, so I had some difficulty getting going. And during this peri period, I became acquainted with the, a cameraman, which I later knew quite well, by the name of Lyman Bruning, who was with Famous Players. And Lyman Bruning, I think, was under contract at the time. Anyhow, he had a, an offer from something new. It was uh, a Baltimore man by the name of George R. Webb, who had uh, control of some inventor who had invented a process for doing something which might be called a talking or singing picture. It was done in a rather crude manner, of course. The, uh, it was done by uh, gearing up a phonograph turntable to the uh, camera mechanism so that as the film was being exposed, the uh, turntable, we'll say it was uh, a Red Seal Victor record with maybe Caruso singing uh, something from Carmen or one of the other... Uh, Pagliacci, perhaps. Pagliacci. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, it was a playback proposition. The way it worked out was this. We would have the setting and the uh, characters all in the set and take the picture as usual. But uh, as this record was being played, and synchronized with the film, Caruso or wh whoever the artist was, Martinelli or whoever, w would mouth, go through the motions of singing what he had previously recorded on this record. And being the artist who made it, it was quite an easy matter for him to simulate on, uh, that he was actually doing it on the, at the time instead of just playing it back. So that's the way it was done, and the success of the thing just depended on its uh, perfect synchronization when it was finally projected. And there was uh, uh, some Eastern people with money who were quite prepared to uh, put in some money and go ahead and organize this company on a more permanent basis, but uh, the projectionist, who's uh, had the success of it in his hands by the proper synchronization of this thing, wanted a little more money for this special occasion when this preview was to be uh, shown, and the company were not inclined to give him any more money, so he deliberately ruined the uh, synchronization, and and those who had come prepared to invest in it were completely disillusioned, and the thing never amounted to anything, and it, that was the end of it, as far as I know. So that was the end of that little experience, and shortly after that, Duan decided to do a, a more pretentious picture in the East with Norma Talmage. The name of the picture was Panthea. And Duan having advised me to go East and this uh, venture not having lasted long and uh, me not doing anything, he approached me to see if I would care to do this picture with him, which I was very glad and happy to do. So that was, I think, the first picture I did of any uh, consequence that had entirely artificial lights uh, for the interiors. Out here on the coast, of course, we had a mixture of daylight 
in a glass curtain studio with an, uh, some booster artificial lights. But in New York, this was, uh, of course, an entirely closed, dark studio with the only illumination coming from lights, and I was a little bit confused, but we got through the picture all right, and in fact, got quite good notices, photographically as well as dramatically. And for, for that time, I guess it was considered quite a successful picture. So that was just that one picture, and I've forgotten just what did occur after that. Let me then see. I have a note that uh, you did some more for Triangle, apparently on the coast out here with Jack Devereaux and Winifred Allen and Earl Fox. Well, that was it back in the, in the East, was. because I didn't come back here after that. I see. Mm -hmm. I decided as long as I was East, and Marjorie had also come, uh, come to New York at that time, and we decided to stay there at least for a while, although we didn't really like it at first. But we decided to stick it out anyhow, and things kept opening up then after Panthea. Then I had several offers. Of, in fact, I could make a choice almost. So anyhow, I believe the next thing after that was uh, some more with Dewan out in what used to be known as the Whitman Bennett Studios in Yonkers. Well, the north end of the place there. And it was under the banner of a Triangle Films, I believe. And there were several pictures there, nothing of any great uh, notoriety, I guess. There was uh, old pictures with uh, Jack Nelson, Winifred Allen. Uh, I don't just remember who else has occurred in the... Did you say Jack Devereaux? I, I think I said Jack Devereaux. Anyhow, there was a series of uh, run-of-the-mill pictures that took place there. And eventually, I think that studio was sold or they decided to discontinue work there or what. But anyhow, that was, it came to an end. So then I think after that, that I went with uh, Fox. the Fox Company. Oh, Roy Walsh had, uh, was directing there, and he had seen Pathy and liked it and was in need of a camera. And so, Anyhow, that resulted in my getting the assignment to go with Walsh, who was a very good director and doing some very much talked about pictures at the time, and I enjoyed the association very much, and we did several pictures there. It was about, I think, during the, during or toward the end of the First World War, as I remember right. Mm -hmm. Because you did the Prussian Kerr. Oh, yes, the Prussian Kerr was one, and pictures of that nature. And then weren't you in Florida for Woman in the Law with Miriam Cooper and Oh, yes. Hopkins? Yes, uh, while there we did do considerable location work and some down in Florida. Mm -hmm. And that particular one you're referring to, I think Miriam Cooper was there. And I believe, um, oh, Peggy Hopkins Joyce entered into the picture there somehow yes. and went to Florida with us and was featured more or less. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're just at the point, I believe, where you go over to famous players, Lasky, but I think you'll forgive me oh, if I ask Marjorie to uh, step back and tell us a little bit about uh, how in the former American days they used to borrow properties around town, around Santa Barbara for the films. Would you tell us a little oh, bit? Oh, yes. Um, well, I think I, I mentioned before that the um, residents of Santa Barbara were very glad to cooperate and help in any way they could. Uh, so. The uh, film company, of course, didn't have an extensive properties room. They had a few things that were needed, for, especially for Western films. But uh, when they needed to dress the sets and have something 
special that they needed in the in the picture particular picture they were making they would borrow articles of different kinds from uh, the residents of Santa Barbara who were very, always very glad to lend them and uh, my grandmother had a, a harp in fact she played the harp and I played it too when I was at that time I was playing and uh, it was the only harp in Santa Barbara so when they they wanted to have a picture with a music room setting or a mm -hmm. very period living room something they would rent this harp stand it in the corner and it dressed the set well in one case they rented it and uh, Margarita Fisher was supposed to play it in one of the American Beauty mm -hmm. company things and it seems that uh, Miss Fisher photographed better on one side of her face. So she, oh, yes. not in ever playing the harp, and no one was there to tell her, she put, put the harp on her left shoulder instead of the right and played the harp left-handed all through the scene. So when it came onto the screen in the local theater, all the musicians and people who knew better, it, oh. they laughed in the wrong place. It made a very oh. funny Well, funny of course, thing. I see that. And that was um, the... Um, Another thing that I remember they borrowed from my family was in a, a picture of Vivian Rich and Billy Garwood, and uh, I believe George Field played in it, and it was called The Oath of Pierre. Oh, I remember that. And the, they needed a crucifix, a very, supposed to be a very uh, beautiful crucifix, someone large enough so it could be safe. Mm. So anyhow, my grandmother had one that somebody had given to her came from Rome and they borrowed this crucifix and used it in the mm -hmm. picture the oath of Pierre and was, uh, Vivian Rich prayed and yes I and do remember so that forth. one and uh, then in the end the the Billy Garwood swore the oath of Pierre on this crucifix that he would uh, avenge the murder of I Vivian see. Rich that but there were a great many things that were lent to the mm -hmm. uh, the film company by the the local residents to, to and of course the local residents this being a rather historic place would yes. have Oh yes, they had things, things of all the things, the old interest. Spanish uh, mm -hmm. things. You know, they used to lend old Spanish chests and mm -hmm. Spanish shawls and things of that kind. That's all I recall at the moment. Yes.